I think the fact that the Psalms are so significantly placed in Scripture, it reminds us that there are some truths that are so large, they'll never fully be expressed without music. We have to sing them into our being. And I'm really excited to know this morning that we are not alone, that we have a God who loves us. And if you think it's just the Psalms that say that, let me read just a few other verses for you. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Or 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Ephesians 2.19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Psalm 36.5-7, Your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the ocean depths. You care for people and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your unfailing love, O God. All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. My favorite, 1 Peter 2. Verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you might proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. We are loved by God in a lavish and extravagant way. He loves us. Your identity is firmly rooted in Christ's love for you. It's true that God loves all of humanity, but I wonder if at times we get so caught up in his love for us that we might forget that his call of love also calls us to move forward. You heard the passage from Ephesians 2. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's possible to become so absorbed in the love of God that we start to feel privileged. Like, well, God will make allowances for me. He loves me. Or or God will wink at that transgression. He, He loves me. You might even end up like some of the Pharisees who served as religious leaders in the time of Jesus. Those folks were so convinced that God loved them and that they were right about everything that they just stopped listening to God and just assumed that he loved them and whatever they did was right. 
In fact, what they created was a system based on what was written and based on what they believed everything meant that they read. And built on those things, the tradition of the elders and all the words of their holy writing, they created a religion. It wasn't exactly Judaism, but its roots were in Judaism. In the time of Jesus, it was expressed in what you might call the denomination of the Pharisees. Now we know that Jesus had a lot of difficult things to say about the Pharisees in his time. But you should understand that not every Pharisee was alike. Just as today, every Christian in every Christian church is not alike. I often cringe when I see the things that Christians I know are posting on social media. And I think to myself, boy, I'm glad that I'm not that kind of a Christian, or at least I don't want to be that kind of a Christian. Every Pharisee was not like every other Pharisee. Nicodemus, we heard his story just a few weeks ago. Uh, he was a Pharisee, and he was one who was inquisitive. He went to find Jesus, to, to get wisdom from Jesus and talk to Jesus. He was open to new ideas. He was willing to talk and listen. And we really do need to give the Pharisees the credit that they deserve. Not everything was wrong about the Pharisees. These Pharisees were known for taking their religion seriously. They took time to study the law. They were the Bible quizzers and Christian school students of their day. They weren't about to allow ignorance of the law to trip them up and cause them to stumble. They organized their whole lives in ways to be certain that they were keeping the law. They observed the Sabbath. They followed the dietary laws. They gave tithes and offerings. They worshiped. They prayed multiple times a day. They sent out missionaries into their surroundings. These Pharisees were religious, observant Jews. Some of them, however, most notably the leaders among them, started to become prideful about their accomplishments. Some of them began to look down on others who weren't as strict about law-keeping as they were. They allowed a, a judgmental attitude to sneak into their lives. Some of them grew so fond of their influence and their power and their personal righteousness that they started to believe that it was necessary for them to be in charge in order to protect the faith. And that in the spirit of protecting the faith, well, they could do whatever they needed to do to keep the faith pure. In other words, the faith needed them, they believe. And that is always where things start to get messy. Things have somehow gotten twisted up in the minds of the Pharisees. And Jesus warns the people about them because they've confused the truth of the law with their position and their power and have decided it was more important that they be in power so they could keep the faith pure than it was to actually do what the spirit of the law intended. We know it's true, right? Because if you're keeping the law, how can you even think about 
killing someone who you think is a threat to the kingdom. So we know their thinking has become confused. This is Matthew 23, 1 to 12. I know it's taken a long time to get to the scripture of the morning, but I would invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. This is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Matthew 23, 1 to 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven." Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The scribes and Pharisees hold a place of authority in the community. And so Jesus encourages the people to respect that and listen as they instruct people according to the law. However, and these are the words that are so difficult to swallow, don't follow their example. You've heard people say, do what I say, not what I do, right? I mean, that's what this is all about. These are people who ought to know what is right, but do not do it. At some level, this is neither trust nor obey. This is read the law, but don't do what I do because I'm not following the law. If you want a complete list of all that the Pharisees were guilty of, you have to read past the passage that I just read to the seven woes that follow the story. In summary, this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Your bad example keeps people out of the kingdom of God. That's rather scathing, isn't it? You work to make converts, but you convert them to your own practices, which is deadly for them. You exalt the value of gold above the value of the sanctuary of God and what it stands for. Money-hungry folks. You publicly display your tithing practices, but you do not practice justice or mercy. You are faithless. You polish your personal exterior image but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You look clean, lily white on the outside, but your inside is full of filth and death. You pretend to honor your ancestors and the prophets, 
And then you act just like your ancestors who murdered the prophets. And this is what Jesus is saying about people who had convinced themselves that they were loved by God and favored by God. These are people who have ordered their lives to some degree to obey the law of God. These are people who are so convinced that they are right that they are blind to all their foolishness and are blind to the practices that hurt themselves, their families, and the others around them. Their belief in God's love for them has made them arrogant. And that is not what God's love is supposed to do for us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says as he describes his approach to the people of Thessalonica. And remember, Paul used to be a Pharisee too. Don't forget that. 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 5. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was towards you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is what God's love is supposed to do for us. When we consider all that we've received, when we consider all that we have been forgiven of, when we consider the grace we continue to receive day after day, when we consider the patience that God continues to exercise with us on our behalf, when we consider how little we really know about God compared to how great he really is. I mean, he's revealed himself to us, but we know there's so much more that we can't even begin to understand. Love from a God like that should make us hum humble. It should make us humble. And, and what does humble look like? Humble looks like patience with those who are just beginning their journey. It looks like kindness to those who are failing and stumbling. It looks like graciousness to those who are irritating. It looks like a willingness to hear the viewpoints and opinions of others with kindness. It may even look like cleaning toilets and mopping floors if that's what's needed at the moment because it looks like dirty hands and tired bones 
and the good feeling that comes from working hard all day long. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees? They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They only work when others can see them working to improve their image. The true sons and daughters of the kingdom, they work when no one is looking, are willing to do any sort of work that they are able to do, and they value those who are journeying with them, treating them kindly and graciously. They can do this, they can do all that they are called to do by the enablement of the Holy Spirit because they know that they are loved by God and that nothing can separate them from the love of God. You know the Romans 8 passage, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, nothing, nothing. When you are convinced of God's love for you, you can endure all kinds of unloving things because your value is secure in the love of God. In fact, you can afford to be humble. God's love is our security anchor. It is because his love is unchangeable that we can risk the, the mean-spirited accusations of others, that we can resist the need to puff ourselves up with artificial importance. We don't have to clamor for position. We are loved by God. We don't have to be greedy or covet the possessions of others. We are loved by God. We don't have to look down on others or, or say insulting or harmful things about others in order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves because we are loved by God. We don't need to spend lots of time and money polishing up the exterior appearances because we are already loved by God and nothing we wear is going to increase his love for us. And while your neighbor might judge the way you look from time to time, God sees through all of that external stuff, seeing right to the center of who you are, and he loves you. We are loved by God. But I wonder if at times we disappoint him by our failure to live within his love as children who are loved by him. Have you ever heard the phrase, a humble giant? Have you ever heard that phrase? It refers to truly great individuals who maybe don't seem to know that they're great. They don't act like they need deference. They don't boast. They just quietly and simply do what they were created to do. Mother Teresa was a humble giant. Pretty tiny in life, but a humble giant nonetheless. She simply love the poor. I heard a story this week that um, told about a particular incident in the life of President Ronald Reagan. In the days after the assassination attempt on his life when he was shot and when he was hospitalized, some days after that, uh, he got up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom in his room. And he... Uh, washed his hands afterwards and splashed water onto the floor. And so he got down on his hands and knees 
and was wiping up the water on the floor in his hospital room when an aide walked into the room and saw the president on the floor mopping the bathroom floor. And she said, Mr. President, we have people to do that. And he said, I know, but I made this mess and I'm not having my nurse come in here and clean this floor for me. And, and that was a picture into someone's internal character. Whether you like them as a president or not, there's something about humility that draws us in, isn't there? I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say this morning is humility isn't a characteristic that is exclusive to Christians, but all Christians should be humble because their self-worth is not anchored in what other people think of them. It's not anchored in what other people think of us. It is anchored in the fact that we are deeply loved by the creator of the universe. And that should be enough. That should be enough. He really does love us. And I know for some of us, it takes a little while for the truth that God's love is for us to go from our head as knowledge and sink to our hearts so that we actually feel it. But you need to know that he loves you, that he values you, that he treasures you. And because of that, you can take the risk of being humble. You don't have to toot your own horn. You don't have to look down at others. You can rest in the love of a mighty God for you. Because now, we don't really have anything to prove when we know that God loves us. We don't have to be anything other than what we are when we know that God loves us. And if we will walk in that song that we sang with simple trust in his love and obeying the Spirit's call on our lives, then we will know richness and fullness and joy in this lifetime. That's my desire for you, that you will know the fullness of joy that comes when we walk and step with the Spirit of God, the Spirit who loves you, who's never gonna ask you to do something that is distasteful or out of step with what Jesus would do, but always calls you deeper and deeper into the warmth of relationship with God. Do you really believe that God loves you? You really believe that? Do you know it? For some folks, it's more than you can believe. I've talked to folks who believe they've done things that were so bad that God could never forgive them, and I've tried to assure them the immensity of God's love for us reaches deeper than anything you can have done because he really loves you. For some folks, it takes a lifetime to learn the fact that Jesus loves them. And so because of that, we try to teach you early that God loves you. You know how we do that, right? You can sing with me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. 
Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. The Bible tells you so. The Spirit of God tells you so. The example of Christ tells you so. Brothers and sisters, we are loved by God. Can you relax into that for a minute? We don't have to put ourselves in a position to feel like we have to beat up the world and defend the faith. The shoulders of Christ are broad enough to handle whatever the world throws at it. He is almighty. He is omniscient. He is everywhere present. He is mighty. We can rest, what did the psalmist say, beneath the shelter of his wings. We can relax into the love of God and listen for the voice of the Spirit as he tells us what the next step is and what the next step is so that we can grow deeper and deeper into this loving relationship with God. Do you really, do you really know that God loves you this morning? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we've sung about your love generation after generation. And you have demonstrated your love to us consistently, generation after generation. And I pray, Lord, today as we are gathered here in your presence that you would remind us each again how much we are loved by you. May your love sink deep into our hearts, deep into our psyches, deep into our soul, so that we have confidence in you, that you will be present for us each day that we live. And may this conviction of your love for us help us, Lord, to be your humble servants. Help us, Lord. Give us the freedom to respond to what your spirit calls us to do because we know we're loved by you. We know that you have us in your hand. We know that we rest under the shelter of your wings. Lord Jesus, give us courage for these difficult days when there are so many enemies of the cross around us. Remind us again that we are loved and under your protection and that we can live in joy, in fulfillment. We can live in peace because of your presence with us. Help us to that end, we pray. Amen. Sing this short song with me as a response today. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, 
Come, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. As you depart this morning, after the benediction, I would challenge you as you walk out and as you greet one another, as, as you see one another, to in your mind say, oh look, there's another one who's deeply loved by God. Every time you meet someone, every time you greet someone that, this afternoon, think in your mind, there's another one who's loved deeply by God. And it will help you know how to respond to people, won't it? If every time you meet someone, whether you're looking forward to the meeting or not, you remind yourself that this is another one loved by God, you're going to want to do good for them. You're going to want to encourage them. You're going to want to smile at them. You're going to want to share your mutual rejoicing that you have been recipients of the majestic love of God. That's who you are. What did 1 John 3, 1 say? How great the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what you are. That is what you are. Glory to God. Would you stand and receive the benediction? May the love of God be so firmly rooted in the depths of your heart that you live all of your days in joy, trusting in the one who loves you and has called you into his kingdom. To God be the glory now and always. Amen.